outbound ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. Today I speak with Kurt. Kurt is the friend of friends. We always used to see each other at social gatherings. And then one day, I swallowed my social shyness and chatted to him. Wow, what an experience. I'm so grateful for being able to let go of fear these days. It has opened new worlds for me. I was fascinated to hear that Kurt was fundamentally involved with the Waranya Zicht City Farm project and now in the SA Urban Food and Farming Trust. Have a look at the Waranya Zicht City Farm website at www.ozcf.co.za. You can find more information on the Trust by clicking on the Governance tab. The Trust does wonderful work in communities all over Cape Town and I wanted to know from Kurt how he journeyed from America to managing farms on the southern point of Africa. This podcast is supported by the first layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There's also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on the first layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. Please also look out for information on my new book, Life and Non, a 12-step guide for non-addicts. You can find it by following the link from the right of my homepage. It costs 300 rand without postage. Order from me in my shop at www.freddyshop.co.za. Life and Non is also available on Amazon and so is the first layer. This is Kurt's story. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Good morning, Kurt. Welcome to Meet Me in the Field. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Freddie. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> you are most welcome. I was thinking this morning, I think it's about 18 months since I asked you to be on the podcast that we are actually having this conversation. Yeah, usually my diary isn't that full, but I think there have been some events that have <laughs> yeah. made it worth pushing the conversation out. But at a certain point, we just have to have a chat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. You are American, am I correct? Yes, I grew up in, in America. It's been 20 years in South Africa. 20 years already? Yeah. Okay. And where in America did you grow up? So I grew up in the Midwest in a small town in Ohio that has okay. uh, one of those American universities in it called a college. So okay. no postgraduate work. Um, and about 10,000 residents, including about 3,000 students. And my father was a professor there. Okay. So I grew up in a small, lovely town in the Midwest. So kind of, it, 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 it sounds like the Stellenbosch version of America. <laughs> Not not quite that fancy and about <laughs> half, no, about, well, whatever, 10,000 people. But okay. yes, I mean, that, that notion completely dominated by its, by its educational institution and kind of artificially lovely and groomed and um, a lot of youthful energy and also quite a, quite a um, bastion of progressive activism, which oh, wow. characterized everything. Oh, cool. Yeah. And did you study there yeah. as well? I did not. So when I was growing up in the States, the public education system often has at the advanced levels what they call advanced placement courses. So for students who are kind of pushing beyond what a normal high school class can offer, they offer these AP courses. And okay. instead of that, my school was allowed to have students enroll in certain college courses. So I took some courses at the university while I was in high school, okay. but I went on to university at the University of Chicago. Okay, cool. And what did you study? So I studied in a, essentially a self-designed degree program in something called the New Collegiate Division. So it's like a, a different faculty. And it's a program called Fundamentals, Issues, and Texts which doesn't really tell you anything. I was frowning yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's an intensive way of studying. So it relies on a central kind of organizing question or an issue 
And so each student has their own question or issue they develop with a faculty advisor. And then the program of study concentrates on using substantial primary texts. So okay. you're going to the original text written by people who have thought and written deeply about what your issue is. Oh, wow. There's a set of six texts, and one of them needs to be in a language that isn't English. And so my interest was in the relationship between creativity and science. So I looked at the scientific works and the biographic works, autobiographic works of three prominent scientists, and then tried to unpack kind of the difference between the, the work of the life and the life as a work. So the okay. autobiographic work as a creative work and the scientific work as a professional work. Oh, awesome. Um, and it was fascinating. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I often, as the shorthand version, say that I, I got a degree in the philosophy of science, which is close enough. I took a lot of those courses and also the, the um, introductory courses to you know, physics and chemistry and biology as if I were going to be a major in each one of those topics. So quite a broad scientific and philosophical education. And it basically meant that I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I guess I still don't. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> so when I hear American Midwest, <laughs> what I hear or, or what, what comes up in my mind is kind of a, a relatively conservative and, and religious area. Is, is that correct? As a general characteristic, yes. Um, as in much of almost all of the United States, um, the urban areas are more progressive. Um, they tend to skew younger. There's a great emptying out of the rural countryside okay. by younger people as they, as they move to the cities. And where I grew up is no exception. It just so happens that the particular town that I grew up in, because it had this university, yeah. that it was quite an, an anomaly. So okay. the, the town had the characteristics of a big city in terms of the, the kind of political and cultural values of most of the residents, but it very quickly is surrounded by, by farmland. Um, and I went to school with a lot of farmers, farmers, kids, and, and so on. And there was a cultural difference at the time. I haven't lived there in a long time, and it's been quite some decades since I've been at high school, but um, I think the cultural divide has gotten starker, but you know we had quite a diverse range of kids, culturally, okay. politically, racially, and so on. So I, I grew up in a little bubble in many okay. ways because I thought that was pretty normal. Yeah, you know that's how people grew up, and yeah. we didn't have the internet and um, <laughs> and so on. But generally, the Midwest, I think your characterization is is fair enough. But I think okay. what that means has gotten starker over over the decades okay um, and interestingly the 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 town i grew up in which is called oberlin um was named after um, a methodist missionary named oberlin okay and it was a town founded at the same time as the college oberlin college by methodist missionaries okay and for a long time it was quite a a hotbed of Methodist activism and then anti-slavery activism. It was okay. the first college in the United States to admit both women and black students. Oh wow! Um, so America's first co-educational student and mixed-race university. Oh wow! Um, and the town was a big stop on the Underground Railroad and abolitionist and anti-Vietnam War and uh, gay rights and all of those things were quite on the agenda at Oberlin, well Amazing. ahead of other, other oh, wow. places. And yeah. what was your so, father for me, professor? I, mean, I grew up like that. Of all things, chemistry. Okay. <laughs> he was a physical chemist. He was okay. attracted there for the sake of the, the kind of progressive political agenda. Okay. But it was also founded as a kind of American institution that is um, what's called a liberal arts college. So okay. the the requirements for the different subjects that you, that students studied were quite broad. So the chemistry students weren't just doing chemistry, you know, seven days a week. They also had to take um, social sciences and um, you know arts and okay. oh, wow. uh, across the whole spectrum. Yeah. So very broadly educated, very bright students. I mean, they you go there for a reason. Yeah, um, one doesn't just stumble into it. It also happens to be a, a private and, and rather expensive university. Uh, okay. So, 
there was a lot of financial aid and support, but a lot of children of privilege also kind of flexing their progressive muscles because they could. Um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You know, oh, that sounds happens. awesome. Yeah. In this progressive environment, did you grow up with a form of religion or a form of spirituality? Not really. Um, my mother grew up um, as a, a Methodist and sang the choir and was church-going her whole youth up until um, she moved away when she married my father. Not a, not a hectically kind of, yeah, uh, a, a church focused on love and community, not focused on sin and, yeah. you know, kind of rectitude. You must do this and this. Yeah. And for her, it was, you know, community and music and, and kids she grew up with and really wonderful experience for her. Awesome. My father grew up um, the child of a two Germans from different religious traditions, one Catholic and one Lutheran. And so they just didn't go to church. Okay. They chose their relationship over their faith. Okay. And so my father grew up without a particular faith, but very much in a, in a generic kind of Christian okay. tradition, as many white Americans do. Okay. And for me, there was a while in the 70s where we went to the Unitarian Universalist Church, but really didn't work for our family. Um, okay. So there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of that. My, grand, yeah. my mother's mother was always a churchgoer, but after a while, her health just kind of kept her from going. So there was a current of, of Christianity there, but not any real kind of active okay. participation. But then interestingly, looping, looping back to your question on going to Oberlin College, where I grew up, one of the courses I took while I was in high school was a course in pre-Reformation Christianity, because my, my interest was there, even though my kind of personal engagement in faith wasn't, Christian faith wasn't really there, but kind of that, that hunger to know more okay. about what, what is this thing that has been so important to members of my family. Yeah. Which I didn't really understand it in that way at the time, but yeah, that was that was one of those things that just was part of my childhood. Interesting, awesome. Yeah, and in your university study, looking at the connection you said between art and science. Now, mm. my understanding is that oh my god, now ah, oh, now we we get to my knowledge of art, but if we look at the history of art. Art was, was very closely connected to religion for a very long time. Am I correct? Or is that a wild assumption that I'm making? Yeah, I think that's, that's a complicated thing to unpack. <laughs> I mean, humans have been making art as long as we've had any sort of, of mental capacity. I, th I think there's a deeper urge in the same way that there's a deep urge to understand the world around us and that sometimes, you know, religions help us with accounts of what you know what the world is all about yeah so I, I think these these things are deeply connected and of course there's been art of different sorts in in spiritual practices yeah. again probably since the very beginning and you know for me what was what was the crux of it is you know when we when we think about scientific um understanding of the world a really important question is where does that aha moment come from? You know, where does that insight, where does that, that explanation, that story that no one else has told before that explains something that we yeah. hadn't known or understood properly previously? Mm -hmm. And it's what's that relationship to the, the creative urge? You know, the, the, the putting something on canvas with paint that's never been seen before, been done in that way, or a, yeah. a physical movement that expresses something that people had. Like, what, what's the difference between these, these um, really powerful expressions of human capacity? Mm. Um, and, you know, that that's really was at the heart of, of my question. What, what yeah. is that difference? Do they come maybe from the same place? I mean, obviously they do because they come from people, but yeah. um, you know, beyond that, is it, is yes. it different expressions of the same kind of capacity or urge or is it, are they, are they different things? And we're just, you know, it's almost like they rhyme or, they, you know, they're yeah. echoes of one another instead of being the same thing. Okay. And where did you, you eventually ended up marrying a scientist, a, a archeologist and, and she's Canadian. Am I correct? No, she's also American. Also, so we met at, at university. Okay, yeah. so we met at university. Cool. 
Okay. And how the hell did you end yeah, I mean, up in look, South When Africa? I met her, she was... Uh, I just want to tell the story please, please, quickly. Please. I mean, when I met her, <laughs> I, I met her as a, as a singer and a dancer. And, you know, yes, she happened to be getting her university degree in, in biological sciences and biology. And she went on to get her PhD and, and is a scientist, an evolutionary biologist, actually. Okay. Um, but at the time, I mean, here's this beautiful, amazing, creative, artistic woman. She didn't like register in my mind as a as a scientist, oh. you know, in any way. Um, but yes, you know, I married a scientist who's an academic, and I grew up the child of an academic scientist. Yeah. Okay. Is, who knows? I mean, that that is what it is. <laughs> That's awesome, actually. And uh, how did you end up in South Africa? So our first visit to South Africa was in 19, uh, my first visit was in 96. Uh, my wife's visit was in 95. She was working on her PhD and doing her research on the fossils and the skeletal collections in this part of the world. And so she was at WITS in 95 for a couple of months doing some preliminary research okay. on, her, on her, the methodology for her PhD. And then she came back in 96 for two months. And I came to visit for two weeks in the middle of that time, which was over the Christmas, New Year's holiday. And so she was up in Joburg and we flew down to Cape Town and had a lovely 10 day holiday in the Cape Fabulous. and then went back. And then after she got her PhD and was on the job market, she was doing a, a postdoc and the UCT archaeology department um, needed someone to lecture in human evolution. Ah, and because my wife had just gotten her PhD and had done her research in this part of the world and knew the people, knew the collections, and and so on, um, she was shortlisted as a candidate, and eventually, well, I mean, brought her out for an interview, and she was offered the job. Okay, um, you can also understand. I mean, they first searched for South Africans, but. In the apartheid days, the education in human evolution and evolution mm. biology was skewed in a way that meant yeah. that the level of scholarship just wasn't up to scratch. Yeah. And so in a post-apartheid university context, they, they really couldn't find South Africans. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's why there was an opening for a foreigner. Okay. And it's, it's been 20 amazing years. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, good. how old are you? I recently turned 51. Okay. Wow, you don't look 51 at all. Shoo. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and did you do any postgraduate studies as well? So I, I didn't um, get a degree. I uh, had a fellowship to attend the business school at the University of Chicago um, on a full, full bursary. Yeah. And there was a term that I was able to do along with other fellowship holders um, from around the country in the summer between my third and fourth years of university. And I okay. did that. Um, and I couldn't stand it. <laughs> um, I, I basically, I ran screaming. I mean, to get an MBA, I think at that age without any life experience or work experience is, is quite foolish. Yeah. They did hold on to the fellowship. That was part of a deal. I, mean, I suppose I can still go back. But I just was never really interested in, in getting an MBA okay. um, and kind of stayed away. I did apply and got into a program to, to do classics, to be a Latin classicist wow. um, when my wife was working on her master's degree in Arizona. I thought that I would also get a postgraduate degree. I thought that I wanted to teach at uh, a high school level for, okay. for a while when I was just out of school and thought that I would be able to teach Latin and classics. And yeah. um, I was also interested in that, but there wasn't enough money in our household to pay for two full-time students. And I can imagine. while my wife had a, a bursary for her studies, you can imagine there's not a lot of money around for Latin mm. scholars. Yeah. Um, and I had to bypass, I had to pass on that, that opportunity. Okay. Um, and then kind of life, life moved on um, yeah. and interesting things started to happen and I could never be bothered to go back. And after a while I was teaching at postgraduate institutions and it's like, why, why would I go back 
Yeah. Um, it's never <laughs> been a barrier to what I wanted to, to do. Yes. And, you know, I studied what I was interested in studying as I needed it or, or had time and curiosity. Yeah. But who knows? You're, you're still young. There's still a there's still a whole <laughs> plenty of time. <laughs> yeah, plenty of time to do what to, to to do that. And what did you do when you arrived in South Africa? I was a partner in a consulting firm that I had co-founded, and we were advisors to companies in how to use the internet and related digital technologies. So what was referred to as e-business okay. at the time. So this was around about we started this firm in 98 and so we that was in the states and we had five offices uh, sorry six offices and 135 employees good when grief I immigrated to south africa and i was the yeah i was the senior strategist and so i was actually commuting back and forth and if you can think back to the dark ages 20 years ago <laughs> i had uh, a telecom isdn line <laughs> that i paid we <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. And had this modem up starting. <laughs> a turtle, yeah, it was terrible. But there was a digital line to my house and I could work from here. And I was working on essentially eight-week cycles. I would be here for eight weeks and there for eight weeks and here for eight weeks. Oh, wow. And it was, it was hell. And I, I think imagine. I was saved by the this, this stock market collapse, the tech bubble bursting okay. in... Um, <laughs> in, and what our, our business was helping not the dot coms, not like the pets.com and those, those kinds of companies, yeah. they were getting lots of money and lots of help on the, on the coasts. So on the West coast in Silicon Valley, on the East coast in New York. And our strategy was that we were helping kind of the existing big brick and mortar companies figure out how to adapt and okay. find value in their existing businesses to use okay. the internet. And so we were doing very well. I mean, six offices and, and 135 employees and, and good turnover. But what happened is when the, the, the dot-com funding dried up, our clients just didn't renew the contracts for the next phase of work. They, yeah. they took their foot off, off the accelerator as opposed to um, kind of doubling down and Absolutely. seizing market advantage and you know so on. And I still think they were only listening to us because they felt they had to do something, not because they actually understood what was going on. <laughs> okay. um, and what that meant is we, you know, I was living in South Africa. I didn't have a work permit. I had a residency permit. And we wound up closing five of our offices and retrenching most of our staff, two-thirds of our staff, including myself. And we sold off what was left to avoid bankruptcy. And I was living in South Africa then without a network, without a job, without a work permit. Wow. And yeah, I had to scramble to reinvent myself as an independent consultant and to get a work permit, which thankfully mm. I, I did. And um, I started to do similar kind of advisory work, consulting work, and I found that there was a lot of interest from the from government. Okay, um, and I started doing collaborations in in kind of some restructuring and reimagining of operations and service offerings and those kinds of things. Okay. And I got drawn into a fair amount of public sector work, applying private sector skills, ah. thinking tools and so on, but to solve some public sector problems. And I found that that was really very rewarding, getting away from the, the, the craziness of the financial bottom line is the only measure of kind of what one was trying yeah. to achieve. And really looking at these complicated kind of systems problems because, yeah. you know, the public sector has, has a lot of, a lot of obligations, but not a lot of control. Yes. You know, if, yeah. if one is looking at issues of sustainability or issues of public participation or resource use or so on, you know, government has some pretty crude tools it can use in regulation, <laughs> but not a lot of, not a lot of actual power in yeah. some ways you know it's not we spending had, the money it's not buying the products it's mm. not. so it, it became a lot of work in in systems thinking and kind of complex systems and um i really just have loved that that kind of work oh wow. so did work in resources and recycling and energy um electricity sustainability and tourism okay. um, wow. and so yeah, spent spent a good ten years doing that kind of systems work, um, usually for government of different, you know, 
yeah. local, provincial, national, and in different parts of South Africa. Okay. Um, but a lot of it based in Cape Town. Oh, cool. And then we, what, what, what got us going, the, the two of us going, was your involvement in the Urania Zicht City Farm project. <laughs> yep. I was actually yes. thinking about it this this morning. I still have the T-shirt that says, um, um, "What what 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 is it?" Um, damn it! I remembered it this morning. Now I forgot it. Something about peas well, on the back. Give peas a chance. Yeah, give yeah, peas, give a, peas chance. a chance. I thought it was such a wonderful, yeah. such a wonderful saying. <laughs> so, how did Urania's city farm happen for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been a farmer before. I'm <laughs> It doesn't sound like it, no. For a farm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the last um, eight years has been increasingly about, yeah, urban agriculture and, and our food system. And I got started in that after my wife and I had a child. Ah. We hadn't thought we were going to have children. It wasn't really a thing for us. And then, you know, life happens and yep. your perspective changes and we decided we wanted to have a child, which we did at age 40. We started to look at the world as one does with different eyes. Yeah. And we had been living in our house, in our community, in our music for 10 years, and but hadn't thought about it in terms of schools and parks and kids and, and so on. And yeah. we realized that we really want to raise our child in the community where we lived because the kind of social norms and the patterns of life just didn't strike us as, as healthy. So people mm. living behind their walls and their wires and their spikes and their arm response. And yeah. you know, on our particular street, there are a lot of kids, but the kids don't play together. They don't go to school together. There, there aren't kids out on the street. You know, we divide ourselves by all kinds of different categories. So the Afrikaans kids go to the Afrikaans school and the, the old money goes to Bishop and the new money goes to Redham or wherever they go nowadays. Yeah. And you know, the, some kids go to the German school and some kids go to the Jewish school and almost no one goes to the public schools. Um, and so we were like, and even when kids go to the park to play, they don't play with the other kids. They play with the nanny. You know, yeah. So we, we were thinking, you know, how on earth do we raise a healthy child? Wow, yeah. Sounds like a challenge, kind of right? Social norms. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we decided is we either had to try to find a way to, change our neighborhood or, or find a different way of connecting within our neighborhood, mm. or we were going to move to a different part of town okay. that had the kind of, kind of social norms. That we yeah. And so my involvement in the Iran City Farm was really an attempt to sort of find like-minded people okay. and to get involved as a volunteer and making something positive happen that we worked on together that was yeah. kind of restoring some of the commons and that was a, a communal investment in the yeah. community. What an amazing um, project! And little to get did I know in. what I was getting involved. In. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, people came out by the hundreds and thousands, and I mean, the pent-up demand for this kind of thing yeah. is massive. Yeah. For the people who so don't I, know, I just, just, about, just a quick background yeah, is the Oranjezicht City Farm is an urban farm. If am I correct? It was in the heart of Oranjezicht. Yeah. Um, in, in what okay, do you know how big the the, the, the area was? Yeah, it's a quarter of a hectare, two and a half thousand square meters. Two and a half thousand square meters where people, we could then start at the farm. And um, on Saturday mornings, yeah. they had a farmer's market and everybody went to buy their fresh produce there and they used to hang out there and, and it was lovely. It was absolutely awesome. Yeah. And then life happened. <laughs> <laughs> but but <laughs> be, 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 before we get be, before we get get to life happening, so your involvement obviously grew from 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 a volunteer level to to something else. Yeah, eventually. Okay. The 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 demands of it were such that it, it, we couldn't simply rely on volunteers. So we started as a project under the wing of our neighborhood watch. There wasn't a, a separate legal entity. And the Neighborhood Watch signed a cooperative agreement with the city of Cape Town to use the, the land. And once we realized that this was a project that would have some kind of longevity, then among the, the volunteers, we decided to establish a legal entity that was a nonprofit company. Okay. We wanted all of the energy and the creativity and the ferment of volunteers, but we needed the, the rigor and discipline of having to comply with the Companies Act. Yeah. 
Um, and so that was the consensus among the, the volunteers. Um, okay. And in retrospect, that was a big fat mistake. But anyway, as <laughs> we go. Um, but what what happened is the, the market that you mentioned really took off. And yeah. we spent a lot of time chasing that market. I mean, we weren't making it happen. We were just trying to keep up with what was okay. happening. Um, so who were doing the and, farming? Who were, I mean, it, 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 there's, there's a bunch of city folks starting a farm. Who, who, who does the farming? Who tells yeah. you what to plant, where to plant it, when to plant it, and, and that's, that type of stuff? Yeah. And who does the planting? Who does the work? So we were fortunate that one, <laughs> one of our founders was uh, an experienced organic farmer, Mario ah. Bottiani. Oh, and cool. he was our, our, our guru of farming and okay. did some of the farming, but really it was volunteers who came out. And over time, what we realized is that volunteers are lovely, but you know, sometimes they don't pitch and you know, it's not the biggest priority in their lives. So yeah. if the weather is nice, then they go to the beach or if they need to take mom to the doctor or it's raining and they don't feel mm -hmm. like getting out of bed or whatever. But your turnips need to be transplanted or, you know, whatever Absolutely, things yeah. need to happen. Yeah, the farm's so not going to wait we, for, for, for you. Right. So the first thing that we did in terms of hiring anyone is to hire a pair of farmers. Okay. Um, so that we, we knew that the basics would always get done and yeah. then they would guide the volunteers and train the volunteers. Okay. And that's really the way the model continues to work is, okay. is we employ farmers and then they guide volunteers, uh, interns, and, and others in doing the work. Yeah. And then <laughs> we've had to, uh, we employ a, a farm manager, and her job is mainly supporting the farmers and then running around getting the things that they need, whether it's manure, seeds, or materials for repairs and irrigation system, um, coordinating yeah. what the orders are for the harvest and delivering oh. those. Yeah. Hmm. And, um, yeah, that, that's the core team. And then, you know, we need someone has to do the books. And originally we had some volunteers who were doing that, but it became quite complicated with the market. And we wound yeah. up paying someone to, to do the books. Okay. And then eventually my role as kind of everything else, kind of general management of the project needed to be done where the board knew that there was someone who they could hold accountable for making sure that these things got done. Not that they were worried about it, but it just isn't good governance practice to yeah. rely on a volunteer to, to, you know, be the executive in charge. Yeah, basically. absolutely. And the the board wasn't active enough; they weren't didn't have the, the bandwidth to to take that on themselves. Yeah. And so um, there was a bit of money to keep me going, and that's yeah. It took a massive, hectic pay cut and <laughs> a massive upgrade in the quality of my life working from my home office two blocks away from the farm and awesome. spending my time worrying yeah. about those kinds of things and, you know, able to walk my son to school every day and he goes to school oh, lovely. at the school. It's adjacent to the farm and yeah. my quality of life is extraordinary. <laughs> so you're like a real farmer and you get up in the morning and you, you walk, you walk to, to, to the kind of walk the boy to school and pop into the farm to go and see how this is growing and whether the, the, that thing's got bugs and <laughs> those type of things. And sit, sit on the so stoop, drink a cup of it, coffee and look at your farm, look at your handiwork. <laughs> That's the romantic picture I've um, got in my head. <laughs> there's a bit of that, but it's not my handiwork. I'm not the farmer. So um, I, I'm, yeah. I'm appreciating the handiwork of, of the farmers and the yeah. volunteers um, on the team. But it, it is quite a, a special... Um, privilege to be yeah. able to do that um, and good this this concept has now the the reason why we were waiting to to talk to each other for so long was because there was going to be another farm happening has that happened right so what what happened along the way with with the Iranian city farm is i got involved not having a clue what what i was doing in terms of running a farm but having good you know, experienced farmers and so on. And I know a few things about kind of strategy and business planning and, yeah. and, and operational stuff and was happy to, to play that role. And we then had this farmer's market that took off and ran like mad. And it was, it was a hell of a ride, but it was also paying all the bills. And so we had to feed the beast yeah. to, to keep it going until it, it ultimately stabilized. And along the way, some of the, the insights that I had were that this kind of nonprofit urban food garden um, which we now refer to as, as urban social farming, ah. um, really has a meaningful 
effect on the people who are involved in the communities around it. Yeah. Um, and the, the, um, I don't know what to call it, the belief, the assertion, the, the insight is that this kind of thing does and can work in other communities as well. Yeah. And wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to support these things happening in other parts of, yeah. of Cape Town and beyond? Mm. Um, and there's some attributes of urban farming that really are just really quite powerful. I mean, they're important for, for South Africa in particular, but I think in cities all around the world. So what happens when people grow food together where the primary goal isn't profit or income and the primary goal is also not simply staying alive? You know, it's not commercial yeah. and it's not subsistence is that it creates the opportunity for people to connect in ways that really don't exist for most people under most circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, for one thing, food is a universal. So growing food together is radically inclusive. We often say if you eat, you're in. Um, so unlike many other activities where you need to be able-bodied or even speak the same language, you know, one can get involved in, in growing food or participate in, in what's being grown simply by being alive. Yeah. Um, so it's radically inclusive. Um, and also the kinds of things that we use to define and categorize and rank and, you know, whatever separate ourselves really are pushed to the, the, the boundaries, to the margins in um, when food gardening, growing food. Um, you know, one's age, one's bank account, one's race, um, you know, all these things that, that characterize us really don't matter to a carrot seed or to soil health or, you know, if you're rich, you can <laughs> yeah, make I love broccoli that, grow yeah. faster. And if you're black, it doesn't taste better or whatever, you know, it, it connects us in ways that are outside of kind of our social categories and yeah. norms. And we all pay attention to cycles that aren't human cycles, mm. right? We care about the rain and the weather and the wind yeah. and the, you know, all these, the, and the seasons. Um, yeah, and we, we share in that. And we connect with a powerlessness that as city folks, we don't realize we have. If I, exactly. If, yeah, kind of the, the, the weather patterns, you know, on Saturday you were planning on X, but today, but it's raining, so I can't. Um, while in the city, we, we just yeah. put an umbrella over his and carry on, but, but on, on the farm setup, that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't work that way. I love that. Yeah. And what happens then is it creates opportunities for people to connect who wouldn't otherwise connect. Yeah. They'd be separated um, in these ways. Or So it's not that magic necessarily happens, but these magical kind of connections at least can happen. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a, a liminal space. There's a potential that's there that is created that allows people who approach it with kind of an open mind or an open heart or, you know, whatever can find each other. And they yeah. do the kinds of people who are attracted to these projects you know, do find each other. And we've seen it between farmers and residents and residents and residents and people who would never connect with each other, become acquaintances and friends and so on. And it also, you know, you pay attention to the weather and the seasons and the, and the changes of things. So it creates a space in communities that is a different kind of a space and, and a protective, affirming, positive space. And, you know, Oranizeft is a leafy, affluent suburb and food security and so on those aren't really the the main issues of the day but people do live rather socially atomized lives you know behind their walls and their wires and their spikes Absolutely. and they live digitally and and so on so connecting with one another and paying attention to these things and what you were just talking about with urbanization i mean those are all realities and this kind of food garden runs counter to that yeah. and allows people to connect and connect with place and and so on but in other parts of town you know, there, there are other issues as well. And these, these food gardens can bring people together and give them a sense of, not just a sense of, a reality of agency. They can take a, a derelict space and make it live. Mm. They can make it beautiful and welcoming yeah. and green and productive and connect with each other through yes. that process. And once they've connected and understand that agency, that agency is relevant in many other ways. Yeah. So having food gardens be places where 
um, communities dealing with gender-based violence are able to, to check mm. on the women who come to farm every day. And if they don't show up or yeah. if Mrs. Chabalala comes with a, a black eye or whatever Absolutely. it is, I mean, yeah. then there's a collective to deal with the issue or mm. collective child care yeah. or, you know, it's amazing. There's, there's, a, there's a collective power yeah. that comes from doing that. Yeah. And this has been shown all around the world that the number one thing coming out of urban agriculture projects is what they call social cohesion. Yeah. It connects people. It's not about feeding people. You can't yeah. grow enough food in a city to feed a meaningful number of people. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. you eat what you grow and that's wonderful, but it, it doesn't fill empty bellies really. Yeah. But it does connect people. And so absolutely. our work was to figure out how can we take these insights and help other communities, you know, realize the benefits of mm. it. not by going there and making it happen, but by supporting something that's already happening and, and helping them maybe avoid some of the pitfalls or acquire yeah. additional resources or understand maybe a little more clearly because we've had a little more experience or have analyzed it differently, what some yeah. of the potential is. And if they want some help in realizing that potential, then we can share our lessons and our skills and, and so on. Yeah. So that was really the, the effort and that gave rise to, the establishment of a nonprofit trust, which is the South African Urban Food and Farming Trust. Okay. And now that nonprofit company that we established for the Iranian City Farm doesn't exist. Okay. It's all been folded up under the, the trust, and the okay. trust does this work all across Cape Town. Oh, awesome. And, yeah. And so you're absolutely right. We, had, we have raised a whack of money to do a new farm, which is about – at a site about 800 meters away from the Iranizak city farm on the grounds okay. of, a, of a public school. And that project has been tragic. Originally it was delayed in getting the funding arrangements confirmed with the provincial government. And then we ran into some technical issues at the department of agriculture in releasing the funds to initially drill a borehole and then we had a drought and they refused to drill boreholes <laughs> and then they drilled a borehole and it literally took them a year and three days to figure out how to extract water cleanly and safely from that borehole oh my word a fly-by-night driller who they appointed to um, work and over the period of those delays the principal that we had been working with for years retired. Oh my God. The no. interim principal then had to be booked off for her health. And then the second acting principal wasn't interested in doing anything except just keep the school operating. And in mm. the meantime, in a leadership vacuum, the conflict at that school erupted parents and teachers and the acting principals. And it, it was, it was, yeah really quite bad. And then a new principal came in and at the school governing body, there was also a leadership turnover and a membership turnover. Oh, and word. basically they, they have not basically, they have notified us the beginning of March um, with a letter saying that they don't want to do the project, Oh my word. which puts them in breach of contract because they signed a 10 year agreement to do the project yeah. it's on that basis that the provincial government started spending money. Mm. But what does one do? Does one sue? public schools is the provincial government going to sue itself so the department of agriculture can get its money back from the department of education i mean oh my how God. does that work uh, you know, that, yeah. that's not for me to decide but that's where we are oh my right God. so we've got this whack of money and it's it's several millions of rand mm. um, and their funds from a private foundation as well that we have been now trying to divert to some other sites because yeah. we're not only working here but then we have this coronavirus lockdown that's oh thrown another God. spanner in the works. And, mm. you know, the meeting that we were supposed to have on the 25th of March and now was supposed to be on the 3rd of April has now been moved to the 20-something of April and, and yeah. we'll see. So um, well, we so are trying to channel the resources to support projects that exist in other parts yeah. of town. So, so how many projects are you happened. currently involved in? Do you know? Uh, let me just think. So by projects, do you mean sites, different yeah. sites where those urban farming happen? Yes. Um, so we're currently supporting food gardens in Lavender Hill and Langa and Friedehoek, as well as Oranjezicht. Awesome. Directly. Yeah. 
And then we also provide support to a couple of projects in Kailicha. Awesome. Um, and we've got a new one that we are seeing if we can make happen in Dunoon. Excellent. Um, and a couple of years <laughs> ago, we also raised money and supported a large farm on the grounds of the, the psychiatric hospital in Mitchell's Plain. Oh, cool. You know, when I, when I hear these um, things, I, 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 they, there's some other energy that gets released in me and I, and I start getting so excited and I start getting, it sounds like such an amazing work that, that you guys are doing. How do you, how do you stay positive and committed when, when you run into, into, into crap like this? What, what, <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you connect to? What it can you, be difficult. <laughs> but look, part of it is this is the work, right? I mean, if it were easy, it would have been done. Um, and, and what we're trying <laughs> okay, to do yeah. is, is, is make something happen that can break new ground that can, yeah. that can show that no these things are possible. So <laughs> yeah, well, um, but you know, the other thing is if we can't do this, you know, as, as people who have the, the privilege of time and education and resources yeah. and speaking the language of English and understanding how governments work and having access to networks of influence and, I mean, like we can get stuff done if we can't do this. I mean, God help yeah. anyone else who really tries to wade yeah. in and make this stuff happen. So, um, you know, you kind of roll up your sleeves and get back in there. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, you know, if if you're just smashing your head against a wall, you you, you got to stop and, and go, <laughs> go to something yeah. else. But it hasn't been that kind of a thing. You know, okay. it's been make progress where you can. Awesome. And it's a it's a game of persistence. Yeah. You know, so it's it really is. It's about shifting understanding and yeah. providing real evidence and in different forms that this kind of thing is worth doing and it's powerful. It sounds like it, yeah. and it's effective, and it takes time to do that. Yeah. Oh wow. So so you, you you sound like the exact right person to do this. You just seem to have the correct mindset and the correct um um um, um uh, what's the word I want to use um con no um. Um, uh, physical makeup, um, um, mental makeup, spiritual makeup. Is that the word? That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> I, I kept on thinking constipation. <laughs> terrible to be African. <laughs> terrible to be Afrikaans and try, and try to speak this this foreign language of you. <laughs> <laughs> but good. And I knew uh, we were going to talk longer than I was planning to because I'm so excited about the work that you do. Because at some stage you spoke to me about. Uh, okay, Freddie, get get your gears together. A, kind of a, a, a pop up of a fold up classroom that 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 you were involved in as well, or that you heard of, or something like that. I'm not sure what you mean with. Uh, so th there are different aspects to to using these sort of food gardens in that involve education. So you know we are an educational nonprofit. Yeah. It's all about the education, even though it's it's community development is the biggest impact. Yeah. Education is the, is the material. It's what keeps people coming back. It's where the, the energy goes and the kind of the second order benefit is bringing people together and building community. You don't do that directly. You don't sit down and say, Hey, let's build community. You get yeah. people together to learn something or to teach their kids and that builds community. So in different spaces, we've, we've worked in, in different ways. Some of them um, involve, you know, raised beds and it, on school grounds where there really isn't fertile soil or, or space to do it. Some of it is, you know, on the grounds, big grounds where you need structures. Yeah. And you've got to be quite creative in how one brings structures into the picture because there's not a lot of money and you've got to deal with zoning and land use and planning approvals and budgets and so on. So there have been all, all kinds of ways that we have worked to create educational environments that um, lead to growing of food, but yeah. also use the growing of food as an educational environment. Cool. Good. If yeah. people want to get involved in these type of projects, do you have a website where they can find you? Yeah, Some the other? easiest place is to go to, to the, the Ryan Music City Farm, ozcf.co.za, awesome. um, and there's a uh, page in there about the the trust as well and the work of the trust. Awesome. 
Um, but I think the most important thing is for people to get involved in planting something near where they live. Yeah. With with their neighbors, with their church, with their mosque, with their school. You know, having some kind of more or less public space where people can put a few plants in the ground. It doesn't even have to be directly in the ground. It can be in, in a raised bed. You've um, just given me a brilliant idea. We, I live in a security complex in Somerset West, and we have a swimming pool area in the complex. And that pool is the source of immense frustration because people with a drought, we had to put a cover on and people swim and they don't put the cover back on and people fight about the space and everything. So I think the answer to that is cover the bloody pool and let's make a garden. <laughs> so, so if you get a call from me one day saying listen I, I need your, your consultation for the garden we started you must know that I've won this fight but Kurt, I'm All right. <laughs> I need to call it the day yeah, but thank you so 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 very much for this chat I loved it I love the work that you do you your, your, your passion your energy is just amazing and um, wishing you a thank wonderful you. rest of your, of your lockdown period and all of the best with your, with your project moving forward and give regards to to your wife will do awesome thank you, so much, Thanks thank you. lovely to chat thank you Ciao. Ciao. Bye. bye i got a beautifully warm excitement running through my body while chatting to kurt it warms my whole being when i speak to such inspirational people i used to live in oranizicht and attended the farm's market often I shall never forget the day when we were strolling through the farm and overheard Cyril Ozinski, one of the founding members of the farm, explaining to a blind man whom she was leading through the farm in such detail, with such commitment and passion, what she was looking at in the ground and around her, that I felt a far deeper connectedness to the project than I have ever imagined. There was such humanity involved. Both Yaku and I own Give Peace a Chance t-shirts, and we wear it with pride. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za, or find me on Facebook at either Meet Me in the Field, or Freddy Counselor on Twitter at at Freddy, or Instagram at Freddy Counselor. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an I-E at the end. Thank you for listening. Be safe. Bye.